understand what we believe, what we truly believe. And so it's not just, not just on our website, it's not just something that kind of, is, kind of describes us to some extent, but we don't know anything about. It's, it's what we truly believe that informs the whys and the what's and the hows of singing. Things that we just spend time singing. What, why? Why? Like all the details of the songs, why would we sing? What, what makes us a singing people? What, what, what makes us sing certain things? What, how, how about how we sing or how we live? Well, what we believe informs all of that. It informs our counseling. It informs, informs our very lives individually and it informs our lives corporately. That we would be growing, remember the two overarching things in our sermon series here, that we would be growing in the knowledge of God and growing in loving him and loving people. So coming out of the last two weeks where we've considered both the authoritative word of God, the necessary word of God, the clear word of God, the sufficient word of God, that is this book, this God's word to us, we've spent considerable time thinking about this, need to spend more time thinking about this as we'll do this morning, but then also as Pastor Dan preached so well last week, the infinite nature of our triune God in all his multifaceted glory, we come to this question this morning. This question is, what are the sovereign purposes of our triune God for his creation? So all of what Dan said last week, and obviously Dan was just hitting on things just in like 10 second kind of increments or 20, 30 second increments, whatever, there's so many things to know about God. What, what are the sovereign purposes of that God? of that glorious God. What are God's purposes for his creation? What does he want for the universe that we're in? Especially, what does he want with humanity that he created? What does he want with us? What does he want us to do? What are our, what's our purpose? And of course, it's a relevant question because if we know what the answer is, that is what our purpose is, then we know, you know what our lives should be about. Why we wake up in the morning. Why we, why we can go through hardship. Why we can watch others whom we love go through hardship. To live in line with what our sovereign God wants for us and what he designed us to do. To know that means we will know what it looks like to fulfill our purpose and to be fully human. So that's what we're considering today and we'll find the primary answer to all those foundational questions in my view in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 at least the foundational pieces that we want to look at today. We're going to read the surrounding verses as well and consider a few other portions of Scripture as we continue. So turn to Ephesians 1, and we'll read the first 14 verses. This is the authoritative Word of God. Nothing less. Not just nice things to think about. This is God's revelation, authoritative revelation to us that must not be skipped that must not be sideways glanced at, that must be taken deeply and uncovered as what it is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's so much packed in those 14 verses. Worthy of a lifetime of uncovering, of, of thinking about dwelling. Nothing is hidden there. Things are maybe difficult to grasp or difficult to understand or possibly difficult to accept. But it's clear what's going on here. asking the question, what are God's sovereign purposes for his creation? And we're going to do that by looking at two purposes, and then from that, tying them together and hopefully coming to some sort of end by way of considering a few implications together. Here's the first purpose. The first purpose of God that we see in our text is this. It is God's purpose to save people from their sins. It is God's purpose his sovereign purpose to save a people from their sins. Paul, Paul starts with verse 3, praising God for blessing them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not just, not just one or two people. This is the church. This, this, these are, happen to be the church in Ephesus, but it's the church, the true church. The, not just the visible church who, where people are professing faith, but the true believers in these churches, people who are faithful to God, who are faithful and really, truly trust him and don't just give him lip service. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to speak about these spiritual blessings. And he'll continue to do that through the verse 14. As you can see, he's just like, one thing after another, he can hardly contain himself. But let's consider the first blessing that comes to Paul's mind as the Spirit directs him. Because we know Second Peter, Peter talks about the fact that men were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. So this, what we're reading here is not just Paul's opinion on something. This is the authoritative word of Almighty God. He says in the fourth verse, that God chose us to be holy and blameless. And in verse 5, he writes that he predestined us for adoption. And then he says at the end of verse 5 that God did this according to the purpose of his will. It is what God wanted to bring about from every tribe and every nation. It's his sovereign purpose to save a people from their sins, from every tribe and nation. He wanted to make us holy. He wanted to make us blameless before him. He wanted to adopt us. It was his sovereign purpose to do these things. 
Now, perhaps the sovereign purposes, this sovereign purpose in particular to save a people from their sins kind of lands on us with a, you know, kind of a familiar familiarity that, that, that doesn't, that's not helpful. I want to take a moment to grow in our grateful appreciation for uh, and wonder by looking again at the backstory. Whether it's the first time you've heard this or the umpteenth time, we go back to Genesis 1 and we find that after God created all things, including man and woman, it says that God saw everything he made and it was very good. Not just, just good, but it was very good. It's clearly good. The Genesis 1 verse 31, and Pastor Dan will be preaching on some of that next week. So the universe and the world were very good, and the people he created were very good. Adam and Eve were, in fact, at that point, sinless. They were sinless. They did nothing wrong, and God in all his holiness was with them. And so you have this picture, right? God in all his holiness, who cannot have anything evil, anything tainted, anything sinful around him at all. Holy God lived or dwelt with Adam and Eve. So that's how good, very good things were. And he dwelt with them in the Garden of Eden, visited them, cared for them. It was harmonious relationship, joyful and wonderful relationship between creator and the creation, between God and man. But, but it didn't last very long, right? Although they had every reason to trust God, to love him, to believe in him, to, to see him and to trust him, they became alienated from him, unable to be in his holy presence any longer. There was something that was in the way at this point. They were separated from him. God put them outside of the garden, separated from his favor, and they were condemned to suffer for their sin, to suffer the consequences of their sin. The consequences of their sin was death. That's how holy God is. So to disobey him, the result of that is, is death. Uh, primarily, you know, physical death and spiritual death, which would then lead to the second death at one point. It, gets, it, was, it was so clear that not only Adam and Eve, but all of mankind then inherited that same kind of thing, that sin, that they inherited not only the guilt, but their ways of disobedience. So that at the time of Paul's writing, he's repeating the psalmist who's saying, there is none righteous. No, not one. It doesn't mean there's not some good people, like very, very many good people out there. There's none righteous before holy God. There's, there's, there are wonderful, wonderful people around this world. None are righteous as God is righteous. None are holy as God is holy. So he was able to say none are righteous, not even one, and that the payment of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. All fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. So there's this spiritual death of separation from God that leads to a physical death, and then he, lead, then he leads to what the book of Revelation calls the second death, which is the eternal judgment of God against mankind's rebellion against him. So, so that's typically this is the, back, the back story of the bad news. And hopefully we're very familiar with that. And if we're not familiar with that, we need to be familiar with that because without the depth and the ugliness and the reality of the bad news, the gospel does not make sense. It, it just lands on you like, who cares? But the backstory of the bad news is, is just true, absolutely true. So there's the good news, though, the gospel. Uh, 
The good news is God wants to save a people from the judgment that we justly deserve. He wants to save us from the wreckage we've made of ourselves and of the world and of our lives by rebelling against God. And he's decided that he's not going to let all of humanity end up spiritually dead. He's, he's chosen some to be holy and blameless before him, forgiven of their sins, counted as sinless. He's going to restore some and adopt some as his own sons and daughters. He's going to remove the separation uh, between him and some of those who are, are on this planet. Peace will be restored. There, there will be a people who are once again welcomed into God's favor and his presence. Once again, that's what God wants. This is sovereign purposes of God. Okay, so, so mankind has departed. Mankind has sinned. Mankind has left. There's alienation. God, though, wants to save a people for himself to dwell with forever. That's his sovereign purpose. But to do that, someone or something has to be done to make that forgiveness and that restoration possible. And that's why God sent his one and only son to the world. I mean, we're so familiar with this. It lands on us like, yeah, holy God who did not have to do a lick of anything towards this, but he does. Sovereign purpose of God to save you and to save me. Paul says in verse 5 that we're adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, through what Jesus did. And, and that's what the gospel is all about. Jesus accomplished that which we are unable to do, truly unable to do. Though we try and we kind of forget the gospel and kind of go back into like uh, the mode of trying to earn favor with God somehow. And then we, we have to be pulled back to understand we can do nothing. God did everything. He lived a completely sinless life. He really was holy and blameless before God. This is Jesus. And then in this act of self-sacrifice, amazing self-sacrifice, he died for our sins on the cross. He took on himself the blame and the punishment that we deserve. And God's promise is that all who believe that, all who trust Jesus as Savior, who will also receive Jesus' record of Righteousness. So not only will their sins be forgiven, but they will be given all Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, He's, his sinlessness. Not because we become holy and blameless immediately overnight. We're in process becoming more and more like Jesus along the way. But we have been credited with all of Jesus' righteousness, all of our sin placed on the cross, all of his righteousness placed on us. This is glorious good news. This is glorious truth. Jesus rose from the dead as first fruits that we might follow him one day, adopted into his family for all the mercies and sovereign purposes of God. So that in a nutshell is the backstory to Ephesians 1. What's the purpose of God's will for humanity? His purpose is to save a people from their sins. And you will be saved. You will be treated as his own beloved son or daughter if you believe in Jesus. If you surrender, if you believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Not if you do this, 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 this. If you believe in Jesus, entrust your life to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. Now, before we leave this specific point, I need to deal with two words that are in the text. Two words of this: chose and predestined. Very important words. God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now that's the part of the passage that, that does not sit right with a lot of people. 
just, just doesn't. Because it says, clearly, that if you become a Christian, if you put faith in Jesus, it's because God chose for you to do that before you were born. He chose us before the foundation of the world, is what it says. He predestined us for adoption, meaning that he assigned a destiny to us in advance that we would become his children. Before you were born, in fact, before the universe was created, God had already decided who it was he was going to save, whom he would adopt. And the reason a lot of people have a problem with this is because it just simply sounds unfair. It sounds like we have no say in the matter whatsoever. Some think it makes God seem like this cruel tyrant who's just saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Deciding who lives and who dies. Others, thinks, uh, others think it just makes our own choices irrelevant. If God chooses us then to be adopted, then, then, uh, be, and if he does so before the world existed, I mean, if this is really true, then everything is simply rigged. All of life is rigged. I never had a say in the matter, and that just doesn't feel right. It offends our sense of fairness. It offends our sense of personal choice. And we certainly are a culture, always have been. Don't tell me what I can do and what I can't do. And so, typically, we want to find ways to explain this some other way. But rather than just skipping over this passage, and rather than sending this doctrine to the island of unfit doctrines, let's just ask ourselves a question. For those who have trusted Christ, how did God save you? Just even in the question, communicate something. How did God save you? What did he do in history to save you? What did he do in your life to save you? How do you explain your lostness and the action of God to bring you out of blindness to see, to bring you out of death to life? How did he move you from not caring about spiritual things to all of a sudden caring deeply about spiritual things? And when you stand before God, if, if he were to ask you um, why you believed God to be your Savior and Lord while others around you didn't, what are you going to say to him in response? Are you going to say, well, it's because I was smarter, because I was wiser, because I was more open, because there is something inherently good about me, because I'm more humble, because I'm more spiritual. What's your response going to be? Well, 100% of us, 100%, no matter where we stand on this specific doctrine, like in at least in our language and our vocabulary, 100% of us will say it was because of God's grace. Why we saw, why we were made alive has 100% to do with God's grace. Looking at God's word more broadly, we'd find the following passage like this out of 2 Corinthians 4. God who said, let light shine out of darkness the one who out of nothing, in Genesis, out of nothing created light, he, same one, has shown in our hearts, our dark hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did we come to know? How did we come to have light in our lives, to be able to understand God? 
God acted first. Once no light, now light. How did it come about? God. How about, how about this? Ephesians 2. A passage that we love to, love to quote. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Let's stop there just for a second. It, there is nothing not clear about that. Once you were dead. Dead. Dead people don't do anything. Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, in, unable to do anything. But, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So once dead, now alive. How? How? God, right? God did it. Now these truths, and more truths like this, Romans 8, verse 30, 9, verse 11, Romans 11, 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, like all truth can simply be rejected. I mean, that's an option. Don't believe it. Um, I just don't believe it. But if you say, yes, I once was lost, but now I'm found. If you sing out with the songwriter, I was blind, but now I see. Or you echo Ephesians 2, and you say, once I was dead, but now I'm alive. All of this is God's doing. He saved me. Then the question that Paul is trying to, that's, that's kind of the assumed place. Paul's just saying, when? When did that happen? But God, when, when did that happen? And Paul is very clear on this. Acts 13, actually, Acts 13, 48 gives us a hint into the prior decision that God made to bring you to belief, to open your eyes, to bring you to spiritual life and give you repentance. After Paul uh, preaching the gospel, I think it was Antioch, Pisidia, and, uh, and, and that's a location that's just north, I think, of where, where Mark and Becca are, um, Luke writes these words, moved again by the Spirit, not just his opinion, not just his thoughts, not just his belief system, but what the Spirit has to say to the church. He says, as many Gentiles as were appointed to eternal life believed. And what we come to see when we believe, um, well, well, then there's our passage, Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As we come to see when we believe that it was indeed God who saved us, that it is all his work. Scriptures tell us that he decided to do that before he actually did it. It wasn't just in the moment he was saving you. There was something that happened way back. God saved you sovereignly as the king on the throne from all eternity he saved you sovereignly because he decided to certainly our wills are in some manner free to choose to believe of course and follow God yes but on account of our sinful hearts we will always freely choose to reject God. Free on the one hand. On the other hand, our wills are in bondage to the sin and decay that our bodies are as, as well. Unable to make 
the choice to follow Jesus, to follow the Lord, to believe in him. Dead. But God chose in his great sovereign mercy and love to rescue some of us from what we deserve and open our eyes and bring us to life and give us hearts of repentance and gift us with faith to trust him. He predestined some to adoption as sons and the way we find out that we're adopted on that is on that day when he comes for us through the preaching of the gospel, through teaching us about Jesus, opening our eyes to Jesus, crucify, uh, that he was crucified for our sins and by the Holy Spirit he quickens our hearts and we respond to him and so that we say, yes, I believe. Well, look, we respond to him and we're saved. But it's all a prior activity of God in our life. He brings light to darkness. He brings life to death. Our wills no longer in bondage to slavery, to sin and self, but utterly freed to respond to him, to believe on him. We love the word deliverance, want to be delivered. Well, you have to be delivered to be delivered. And this is what God does. And it says... That there is a surety that happened way back in eternity past, some way before the foundation of the world, where he fixed his gaze mysteriously and wonderfully, mercifully on you. It, it, it is beautiful. And it is absolutely crazy. Who, who talks like this? It is the easiest thing to do to say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this. This is a hard doctrine. This is a hard doctrine to understand, but it is a doctrine we surrender. And we're like, if, if, if I'm really dead, someone's got to bring me to life. We receive him. We invite him. We, we choose him. But we do so because he makes us alive. And we do so because somewhere in the distant past, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. All of this is God's doing. We're saved by grace. We who are dead, brought to life. We who are blind, given sight. We who are deaf to the words of God, been given ears to hear. When Scripture says God chose certain people in Christ before the foundation of the world, it means that he chose some people to receive mercy. Again, this is, this is the king. This is God who's sitting on his throne, the creator, the holy God, never does anything wrong. And he chooses. We sinned against him. And he chooses, and, and that, that's a sentence of death. And he chooses to give some mercy. Everyone else is going to receive justice. No one is treated unjustly. God is not doing anything wrong by adopting some, but not others, because not one of us deserve anything except for spiritual death. And we call this the doctrine of election because of the word elect, which is also in the scriptures, and it's another word for choose, you could look at Romans 8 or 9 or 11 or 1 Peter 1 or 2 Peter 1 or Matthew 24 or Mark 18 or Luke 18 or 2 Timothy 2 or Titus 1. It's all over the place. 
And we've taught more extensively on this. You can look back in some, some, of, our, uh, some of the sermons in the past, our distinctive series. You can look in any, any of those kind of places or come and talk to us. We'd love to talk with you about this truth because for us it is glor- glorious and it's going to lead, lead into this second point in a few moments. Here's what it says in our statement of faith. It says, God in his great love before the foundation of the world chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. God's election is entirely gracious and not at all conditioned upon foreseen faith, obedience, perseverance, or any merit in those whom God has chosen. His decision to set his saving love on the elect is based entirely on his sovereign will and good pleasure. And that's what we believe. And that's what we love. The bottom line, salvation is all of God, all of grace from beginning to end so that God gets all the glory. And if we really grasp the love and the mercy of that, then it leads to a response. And this response is a response of praise. Having described the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing... Paul says, God, God did it all to the praise of his glorious grace. Not even, not even primarily to make us feel good, although we'll see that's a huge piece of this, but it's to the praise of his glorious grace. That's, that's where all of this is going, to the praise of his glorious grace he chose us. He predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us with in the Beloved. Why has he purposed to save a people for the praise of his glorious grace? Why are you alive here today? Why are you Might be batteries. Batteries, maybe? Check, check. Good. Why? Yeah, the question is, why, why is he purposed to save a people? Why is he purposed to save a people? It's for the praise of his glorious grace. God has a deeper purpose behind the immediate and wonderful purpose of saving people from our sins. And that's the second point. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works. God's purpose, first, is to save a people from their sins. Secondly, God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works, to receive praise and honor, to be credited with being great and doing great things. And Paul is saying that that's what God intends by saving people from their sins. It's the praise to the praise of his glorious grace, that we would make much of him, that, that, that in, in saving a people for himself to dwell with forever, he's making much of himself because he is the glorious one. He is the worthy one. Sovereign purpose is to be glorified in all his works. We can, we can even say that that's the higher purpose because our salvation, as wonderfully merciful and gracious and glorious as it is, it is not the final goal. The final goal, it leads to the final goal, our salvation. That is, God will be glorified in us and through us. 
God is praised for saving a people from our sins. He will be glorified by saving a people from their sins. He will be praised in worship when we're humbled by the reality of our bondage to sin and are grateful that he broke the chains of our hardened and unrepentant hearts, bringing us from death to life. We will praise him when we fully grasp what God has done, bringing death to life, bringing life from death, bringing sight to the blind, bringing hearing to the deaf, all of what God has done. When we, when we, last week, I was watching the baptisms, celebrating in Canada what was happening here and wishing we were here to celebrate with you, but what we were witnessing was, was what had happened in the lives of four people where, where they were once dead, but now they see. And did you not see it in her faces? We saw it in her faces. The smiles. How did that happen? Well, it came about not because they're good. It came about because of the sovereign grace of God. And God was glorified in the testifying of their love for him. Right? Absolutely. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Romans eleven thirty six. Everything exists for God's glory. And the bottom line is that God's sovereign purposes, his reason for creating the universe and for choosing some to be saved is to display his both here in this church and in Dayton, in this community, in this neighborhood, in Dayton, in the greater reaches of this country and all the way over into other parts of the world. The God's glory would be praised. Our statement of faith says it this way. From all eternity, God sovereignly ordained all that exists and all that occurs in his creation in order to display the fullness of his glory. He goes on to say, those whom he has predestined are redeemed by Christ. God does all of this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, let's bring this to a close. We, there's two purpose statements and we want to bring them together into one statement that we can like leave with. And then we'll think about just a couple of implications and then we'll close. Here's the, here's the one statement. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works by the people that he chose to save. God's purpose is to be glorified in all his works by the people that he chose to save. That's, that's his purpose, to be glorified in all his works by the people he chose to save. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God. But the people of God declare the infinite excellencies of the saving creator, the merciful God. You heard it in Dan's sermon last week. You get certain things from looking at the sky, the wonders of God and everything. But as we hear in scripture, and as we see through the preached word of God, and as we receive the word of God and are changed by the word of God, by the power of the spirit, we all of a sudden start believing that Jesus is immutable, unchangeable, Loving, merciful, gracious. He's all of these things. And as we sing and as we live, He is glorified. More of Him, less of us. Any other doctrine concerning this, it's inadvertently turning that upside down just at least a little bit. Some of us, most of Him. We say, all Him. If, 
I know Jesus said, you know, if we don't cry out, the stones will. Listen, when I heard you singing this morning, I'm like, we're crying out. We're praising him. He is worthy. Implications, we exist for him. We exist for a reason. We exist for the glory of God. We don't have to guess why we exist. There's so many people wondering, why, what's my purpose? Why, why, do I, why do I live? What's, what's going on? Friends, we exist for the praise of his glorious grace. Revelation 4 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We, we exist. We live and breathe and eat and work and speak and sing and cry and laugh as the people for his glory, for the praise of his glorious grace. We're saved for his glory, and so we praise him by, by our voices, by our heart of repentance when we sin, and our trust in him, and our seeking after forgiveness, and our unity with one another. Certainly when the Lord Jesus hung on the cross in our place, he was thinking of us as those whom he would save, but there was something more important than you and I on his mind that day. He thought of God's glory above all. He said this in John 17. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may do what? Glorify you. That's what he wanted to do on the cross. Glorify his Father. Jesus' desire was that by his sacrifice, he would glorify God by saving a multitude of people, many of which are here in this room. For his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in his beloved. That's his sovereign purpose what we were made for, what God restores in us by choosing to make us holy and blameless and adopted is to worship the one who is truly worth it and not to succumb to worshiping other things, less things like ourselves. A life surrendered wholly to him. Second implication is because it's God's purpose to be glorified and he's purpose to glorify himself through effectively saving a people from their sins, making them holy and blameless before him, we can have the hope of assurance. Our existence is to know hope. Our existence is for God's glory. Our existence is to know hope, to be assured that in Christ, because ultimately we responded because he chose us. And, and so we believe that, and then we believe his other promises, like Philippians 1.6, being confident that he who began the work, is going to do what? Complete it. So our life is one of hope. Assurance. Certain hope. Third implication. The reason he's 100% committed to making you holy and blameless before him, 100% committed to forgiving you your sins, 100% passionate and committed to loving you, the reason for that is because it is his pleasure to make you happy. Joy-filled. Our existence is to know joy. Not just heady Christians or, or like sour Christians. Please, not sour Christians. People who are happy and, and want to receive our praises. He wants to receive our praises. Joyful singing to him. Even amid sorrow, there is the, there's a, 
a guttural cry out to God that's filled with this sense of, of pain and yet intermixed with the joy knowing He hears us. And we're on a road to heaven where the sorrows will be removed. Let me close with this. I started out by saying the question of what God wants is relevant for us because if we know the answer, we know, that our, we know what our own lives should be about. What does it mean to be fully human? How do we fulfill our purpose for existence? Well, praising God for His glorious grace, not just by lip service, but by a, a life that is surrendered to the Lord, what, that's the purpose. That's what we're made for. Not just for Sunday mornings, right? But to lay our lives down each day, to follow Him, to take up our cross and follow Him. We're, we're never fully ourselves. We're never fully alive. We're never fully dialed into what really matters if we're not doing that. That's what it looks like to have a life full of purpose. When I'm not here for any number of weeks, so I was not here for three weeks out of the first six, and I told the guys, the other elders, the other day, I feel so disconnected. One of the weeks I was here, it seemed like half of you were gone somewhere, and, and there was another group of people here, and it was like a whole different church. I felt so disconnected. It was like, who, who, who is everybody? And not just then disconnected from the church because I'm not here, because I haven't been here, but, but disconnected from the Lord as dealing with things with my mom and dad or dealing with other things that my life is just like the gospel kind of goes away, the things become busy, and I just choose to think about other things, and I don't feel fully alive. And I can't wait to come here on Sunday mornings, to sing out with you, to be with you, to be strengthened by the Word of God, to be strengthened by you and encouraged by you. That's what it looks like to have a, a life full of purpose. Not just on Sunday mornings, but, but day after day, moment by moment. Your, your specific circumstances don't add into the equation. No, no matter who you are, each of us can live a very purposeful and significant life doing the will of God by praising Him, by giving Him glory, by sacrificing, surrendering our lives to Him. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, what does it say? But whether you eat, normal thing, or drink, totally normal thing, or whatever you do, everyone say it together, do all for the glory of God. If you do that thing out of this desire to give him glory, whatever that thing is, you're living according to the purpose of his will, and that is significant. It's what it looks like to be fully human. It's what it looks like to be like Jesus, because that's what he did. And so as believers in Christ, it's our privilege to do what Paul did in this letter. We praise him. We, we praise him for his glorious, purposeful, sovereign grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And we worship him. And we're going to do that again in a few moments by way of singing. But we do first by way of taking the Lord's Supper together. Because listen, when we take the Lord's Supper together, when we, when we drink the juice, we eat the bread... As little as it is, there is this, there's this sense. It's not just a, a, a thing we do. It's something that Jesus told us to do. To remember him, primarily, but then also some way to, to praise him 
for what he has accomplished, what he has accomplished, for where my life is found, for where our forgiveness is found. And so we eat his body. We, our life is in him, so we're eating his body. And there is a joy in that. And we drink his blood, grape juice, um, in, in representing his blood because it is his blood that forgave us of our sins. It paid for us. It, it was poured out so our sins would be forgiven. As we celebrate this truth, we give him praise as we eat and as we drink. We don't just do the Lord's Supper. That's that time of the, this is part of worship. Even just as you've been sitting listening, I know sometimes messages are long, but in the, in the, in the listening of the word of God, receiving the word of God preached, no matter how little you are or how old you are, there is a sense of saying, I don't know that I got all that, but, but Lord God, I know I need all of that. And so minister to my heart. And there is a praise that's there. There is a trust there. There's a surrendering that's there. And so look, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether, whether you're a, a member of this church or, or a first-time guest, you are welcome to join us and in this meal. This is a meal, this is like a, like a, a people of the family of God meal together. And it's a, it's a sorry meal that points to an amazing meal to come on that final day. It, it leaves us wanting more. But if you know Jesus, we come and we eat and drink together in a few moments. So you can, you can come. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not trusted in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you fully understand this or fully believe it, what, what I talked about today. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you've asked Jesus to forgive you, if you've surrendered your life to him, whether you think election is nonsense or not, um, you are welcome at this table. Because our hope is not in our understanding of doctrine like this. Our hope is our understanding in the saving efficacy of King Jesus.